Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, 1 Kings chapter 20. Well, last week we encountered some wonderful spiritual and practical truths as we witnessed the great Elijah pull himself off of the mission field and essentially resign his calling as a prophet of Jehovah to the people of Israel. <clears throat> the Lord tried to teach him on Mount Horeb that it was Elijah's bad attitude. It was his carnal expectations for the results of the miracles that the Lord had done through Elijah. This was the problem. However, Eliyahu insisted that the Lord ought to be harsh upon Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, because he had done everything the Lord had told him to do, and the queen of Israel had threatened him with his life. And the bulk of the people still preferred idolatry to the pure worship of Jehovah. And this week as we begin chapter 20, we will find that Elijah is not even mentioned in the, as, as the book of 1 Kings takes a, a detour into an important history lesson. However, don't take that to mean that the Lord was through with Elijah. Because as we're going to find in chapters 21 and 22 and then the start of 2 Kings, <clears throat> apparently after some unknown amount of time, Eliyahu repented. And he came to his senses. And the Lord began to use him again. And as we left chapter 19, Elijah had essentially appointed his replacement, Elisha, who was plowing his father's field using a team of oxen. And to express his, his fullest commitment to his new calling, Elisha, Elisha, hosted a feast that used his two oxen as the main dish and used their plow yokes as the wood for the roasting fire. And as we open chapter 20, now the scene shifts. And we find that Israel is about to be attacked by an army from Aram, a region that is roughly synonymous with Syria. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20. <clears throat> if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 395. 1 Kings chapter 20. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, rallied his whole army, and with him were thirty-two kings, besides horses and chariots. Then he marched on Shomron, Samaria, and laid siege to it. And he sent messengers inside the city to Ahav, king of Israel, to say to him, Here is the message from Ben-Hadad, Your silver and gold are mine. Also your wives and your best children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord king, I'm yours, along with everything I own. And the messengers returned and said, 
Here is Ben-Hadad's response. I, send you, I sent you a message to, to uh, hand over your silver, gold, and children, uh, wives and children to me. But I'm going to send my servants to you tomorrow around this time. They'll ransack your house. The houses of your servants. Whatever they see they like, they will seize and remove. And then the king of Israel summoned all the leaders of the land and said, Please take notice. Do you see how this man is trying to make trouble? First he demanded my, my wives and children and silver and gold, and I denied him nothing. And all the leaders and all the people said to him, Don't listen. Don't agree. So he said to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Tell my lord the king, I'll do all that you asked of me the first time, but this I cannot do. And the messengers left and brought word back to him. And Ben-Hadad then sent his message to him. May the gods, gods do terrible things to me and worse ones, as well if there's enough dust in Shomron to give each of my followers a handful. The king of Israel answered him, Tell him, he who is putting on his armor shouldn't boast as if he were taking it off. It happened that Ben-Hadad received this message when he was drinking, he and his kings, in the field barracks. And he ordered his servants, Take up your battle positions. So they got ready to attack the city. And at that moment a prophet approached Ahav, king of Israel, and said, Here is what Adonai says. Have you seen this vast army? I'm going to give you victory over them today. Then you will know that I am Adonai. And Ahav asked, well, who will defeat them? And he answered, this is what Adonai says, the young men who serve the district governors. And he asked, well, who will start the fighting? And he answered, you will. <laughs> He counted the district governor's young men. There were 232. And after that, he counted all the people, all the people of Israel. There were 7,000. They set out at noon. Ben-Hadad was drinking himself senseless in the field barracks. He and the kings, the 32 kings who were his allies. And the district governor's men went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent for information. And they reported, men have come out from Shomron. And he said, whether they've come out for peace or for war, take them alive. So the district governor's men left the city, followed by the army. Each one killed his man. Aram fled. Israel pursued them. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of the cavalry. The king of Israel went out, and he attacked the horses and the chariots, inflicting a massive defeat on Aram. Afterwards, the prophet approached the king of Israel and said to him, Go, regroup your forces, think carefully what to do. For next year at this time, the king of Aram will renew his attack. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their God is a God of the hills. That's why they were stronger than we were. But if we fight them on level ground, we'll certainly be stronger than they are. Now also do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and put professional officers in their place. Then recruit an army as big as the army you lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. We'll attack them on level ground. We'll certainly be stronger than they. He heeded what they said and acted accordingly. At the same time the following year, Ben-Hadad mustered the army of Aram and went up to Afek to, uh, to attack Israel. And the army of Israel, already mobilized and supplied, went to meet them. But the army of Israel encamped opposite them looked like two little herds of goats while Aram filled the land. 
And at this point, a man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, Here's what Adonai says. Because Aram said that Adonai is a god of the hills, but not a god of the valleys, I will hand over to you this entire huge army. Then you will know that I am Adonai. Well, they remained in camp opposite of each other for seven days, and on the seventh day the battle began, and the people of Israel killed 100,000 soldiers of Aram in a day. The rest fled to Afeh, into the city. And the wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. Ben-Hadad fled into the city and took refuge in an inside room. And his servant said to him, Hear now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. So if it's all right with you, let's put sackcloth around our waist, ropes on our heads, and go to the king of Israel. Maybe he will spare your life. So they put sackcloth around their waists and ropes on their heads, and they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please spare my life. And he answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a promising indication, and they seized on it to say, Yes, Ben-Hadad is your brother. And then Ahav said, Go and bring him here. And Ben-Hadad went out to meet him. Ahav had him climb up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, I will return the cities my father took from your father. Also, you can set up markets for trade in Damasek, Damascus, as my father did in Shomron, Samaria. If you put this covenant in writing, said Ahav, I'll set you free. So he made a covenant with him and set him free. One of the members of the prophet's guild said to another one, by the word of Adonai, hit me. But the man refused to hit him. Then he said to him, because you didn't listen to the voice of Adonai, the moment you leave me, a lion will kill you. No sooner had he left him than a lion found him and killed him. The prophet went to another man and said, hit me. The man struck him a blow, wounded him. The prophet left and waited for the king by the road, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he called out to the king and said, Your servant was on his way into the thick of the fighting when someone turned, brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. And if he's missing, you'll pay for his life with yours. Or else, you'll pay 66 pounds of silver. But while your servant was... Busy with one thing and another, he disappeared. And the king of Israel said to him, So that's your sentence, you pronounced it on yourself. Quickly he removed the bandage from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to the king, Here is what Adonai says, Because you have let escape the man I had given over to be destroyed, you will pay with your life for his life, and with your people for his people. The king of Israel returned home to Shomron resentful and depressed. <clears throat> Let's try to get the time frame set for what's happening here. Remember that the two books of the kings tends to use synchronization between the reigns of Judah's kings with Israel's kings as a way to express time and sequence of events. And although we're not given the number of years of his reign as a milestone here, we know that we're well into King Ahab's reign in Israel and that King Asa is still continuing his reign in Judah to the south. 
using modern calendar terms, we're probably somewhere around 860 BC. So it's only been about 60 years since King Solomon's death, and in that short amount of time, the glorious United Kingdom of Israel was torn apart by civil war, split into two separate kingdoms of Judah and Israel, which by the way, starting to now by now be called Ephraim, Israel, uh, and that's up in the north. The northern kingdom under Jeroboam, first king after the split, set up calf worship, essentially using the golden calves as representations of Jehovah, and also began honoring pagan idols. And upon setting up the two calf worshiping centers, one in Bethel and the other one up north in Dan, King Jeroboam also barred his subjects from going down to Jerusalem to worship at Solomon's temple because he feared that if his citizens remained loyal to the temple in Judah, they would eventually rebel against him and try to reunite the two kingdoms under one king, a Judean king. And after going through a half dozen more kings following Jeroboam, each worse than the previous and most of them ruling only a short time, Ephraim Israel is currently being ruled by Ahav and his wicked Gentile wife, Jezebel. This co-regency has taken the drastic step of virtually renouncing Jehovah as the national god of Israel and replacing him with Baal, mostly at Jezebel's insistence. And this was because Jezebel was from Sidon, where Baal was the chief deity. King Ahav was such a weak king he, that, that it almost overshadowed that he was a wicked king. It was Jezebel who was the real force behind the throne. Such projected weakness, of course, became apparent to Israel's enemies. And it invited the neighboring kingdoms to do what came natural to them. Expand their own kingdom by invading and conquering another's. And that's what we see happening in this chapter. Aram, what we could call for convenience sake, Syria, although it's not exactly, but it's all part of the same block that you see up here, was being ruled by a fellow named Ben-Hadad. The word Hadad was actually more of a title of the office rather than a person's formal name. In other words, when we say Prime Minister so-and-so or President such-and-such, Prime Minister and President are titles that those who came before them and those who came after them would usually inherit as a national leader. Ben means son. So this, this Hadad of our story was the son of the previous Hadad. Therefore, he's called Ben-Hadad. And Hadad is the name of the Syrian sun god, which was the chief deity of that kingdom. Now, as, I'm, I'll, I'll, as I'll repeat to you many times in our study of the Old Testament, events of the Bible didn't happen in a vacuum. Even though the circumstances and the context are often not included in the scriptures, these invasions and killings and, and, and decisions happened for a reason. So the first question we must ask ourselves upon reading the first verse of chapter 20 is, why 
did Ben-Hadad decide to attack Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom? The short answer is that it had become the national policy of Syria, meaning Aram, to weaken its neighbor Israel. Again, the question is why? To what end? Well, see, some years earlier, Ben-Hadad's father had made Syria an ally with Judah. The king of Judah at that time was Asa, who, by the way, is still king of Judah at the time of our story. But a few years later, Assad decided he didn't need or want Syria as an ally any longer, so he pulled away from them. During that same time, Baasha had become king of Israel. So he saw this as an opening to strengthen himself by making a treaty with Syria, whom Assad had just broken alliance with. And well, so with that treaty in his pocket, his northern border now secure, Basha felt free to pursue his own goal of attacking and conquering Judah without interference from Syria. So he began by marching on Jerusalem. But when King Asa of Judah saw this, he panicked. And he immediately went flying to Hadad and he offered him huge sums of gold and silver if he would once again become Judah's ally. But it would be this time more in the sense of a vassal relationship with Asa subservient to Hadad. But a condition of this hoped for renewed relationship was Hadad must disavow his peace treaty with Baasha and Israel. Hadad accepted the terms and Baasha was suddenly hung out to dry. So as we open our story, in chapter 20, Syria, Aram, is an enemy of Israel, but has a good relationship with Judah. Yet Syria finds itself with a pressing problem. It is that Assyria, which is on its northern and eastern border, was by now a growing and aggressive power and so Syria found themselves caught between two enemies Assyria to the north and Israel to the south in geopolitical terms of that era it made them ripe as a target for territorial expansion by either Israel or more likely Assyria so the new king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, decided to make a preemptive strike at the heart of Israel, their relatively new capital of Samaria. This would essentially neuter Israel and make them no longer a threat. So Ben-Hadad's invasion force, though, was suspect because it consisted of 32 petty potentates each supplying their own contingency of fighting men who were primarily loyal to them. Now these potentates were unruly barbarians with but one thing in mind, spoils of war. And those spoils of war would, would either be precious metals and valuable gems or kidnapped Hebrews that they would use for slave labor. Or if, both went very well, if it all went very well, they'd get it, get it all. They'd get both. They had no grand geopolitical strategy in mind, as did Ben-Hadad. They just wanted to loot and pillage, grab all they could, and go home. 
Apparently, Ben-Hadad was persuasive in convincing these leaders. They had nothing to fear. They were going to have an easy time of it if they just agreed to help him invade Israel. Well, this attack caught Ahav completely by surprise, and he was unprepared. And when he faced this overpowering army from Aram, he and his men ran into the fortress walls of Samaria and they hunkered down. But before beginning the siege, Ben-Hadad sent a message to King Ahav. And he offered his terms for surrender. King Ahav, would no longer, who no longer even remotely resembled the character and pattern of a king that the Lord demanded that his kings over his chosen people and land were to be, well, he was just weak and frightened for his life. He heard the message from Ben-Hadad and essentially saw the demand of your silver and your gold and your best women and children as meaning that what the Syrian king was after in this invasion was tribute and wealth. Just a customary practice in that era. In other words, Ahav saw Ben-Hadad's terms as Israel agreeing to become a vassal state controlled by Syria. And if accepted, Ahav and his family would not be killed, Israel would not be destroyed, and very likely Ahav would even remain in power, even though he would be subservient to Ben-Hadad. Of course, very much of Israel's wealth would be transferred out on a regular basis to Ben-Hadad, but Ahav saw that as an acceptable outcome. Well, Ahav's answer is in verse 4. As he enthusiastically accepts the terms of surrender. But as happens so often in the world, past or present, appeasing an aggressive dictator merely leads to greater demands and to more loss of freedom. So after Ahav quickly agreed without reservation to the demands, Ben-Hadad became emboldened and he upped the ante. He sends his envoys back to Ahav with a message that essentially says, you know, I think you misunderstood me. I don't want tribute. I intend on looting your kingdom of anything I choose, taking you out of power, taking everything that's dear to you away from you. See, this new demand is all about humiliation. It's personal. It's insulting. And it also involves the many tribal and clan leaders who stand to have their wealth and their families taken from them too. See, it's interesting that we see this same pattern of events happening in Israel in our time. Israel's enemies, the Palestinians, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, others, they don't only want Israel's land, they want to humiliate Israel. But whose fault is that? It's Israel's. Because too often they have chosen to appease demands that are unreasonable, if not downright irrational. Each time a demand is met, the enemy refuses to accept unless they receive even more. And every demand involves more and more humiliation. And now that Israel has reached the end 
of what it can possibly give and still survive as a sovereign Jewish nation, various world governments are putting pressure on Israel to accept demands that no other nation in the world would ever accept for peace terms. And although few will ever remember, this process started in its current form in 1967 when the Israelis recaptured their holy city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount from Jordan and of their own accord in an attempt to appease, to appease Islam in the West agreed to give control over the Temple Mount back to Jordan for them to operate it as an Islamic holy place. Well, how has that worked out? And that's an error that haunts them to this day. Ahav knew these demands were not going to stop coming. Because part of Hadad's goal was apparently to punish and denigrate Israel for some reason. So Ahav knew he had little choice but to go to Israel's elders and leaders and present them with this proposition. They agreed that Ben-Hadad's intent wasn't tribute, it was destruction. It was servitude. So they told Ahab not to give in. Well, Ahab told the messengers that he remained committed to Hadad's first demand, but not the second one. And when Ahab heard the message in verse 10, he was furious over the reply. And he swore an oath to his gods that he was going to rain down terrible destruction on Samaria. He even boasted that his army is so numerous that there won't be enough dust in Samaria for each soldier to return home with a bag full as a souvenir of their exploit. The king of Israel replies to Hadad's boast with the Middle Eastern equivalent of don't be counting your chickens before they hatch. But verse 12 explains that part of the reason for this over-the-top offensive language by Ben-Hadad was he was drunk. He was in the middle of a drunken party with his 32 potentates and as males of our species generally have a bad habit of doing, he needed to thump his chest and show off a little bit to his drinking buddies. It says that his this drinking bout was taking place in huts or actually what it says is Sukkot. And despite what some rabbis have tried to make out of this remark, the term Sukkot here has no religious connotation to it at all. It just means that while the soldiers were probably in tents, the leaders had temporary huts made for them that were more comfortable and, and more to their liking. Now remember, they, they had set up a camp that they likely felt they would be in for anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. See, that's the nature of siege warfare such that it is usually a waiting game for the trapped and the besieged city to run out of food and water and have a little choice but to surrender. Alternatively, the purpose of those high defensive walls around the city is to hold off an attacking enemy until the weather eventually drives them out or they just tire of the siege or help comes and the city is rescued. Well, suddenly a prophet of Jehovah comes to Ahav Verse 13, look at it, ought to start off and read, Behold, because the Hebrew word is hine, 
And when we see this word, hine, it is for the purpose of saying, heads up, pay attention. See, what's coming is important. And this anonymous Navi, this anonymous prophet, tells the king that the Lord is going to deliver outmanned Israel from what can only be certain annihilation at the hands of such an enormous army of Aram. Ahab's only question was, through whom? And the rabbis say that this wasn't that Ahab instantly accepted on faith that God would deliver them, but rather was an expression of skepticism and of despair that meant something like, Right. Now exactly how are we going to be delivered from that huge unstoppable force and who's going to lead that? And the Navi responded that it was going to be these through these youthful sons of the officers of the provinces. And when Ahab asked who it was that was going to lead this battle, the prophet said, You? Now one must know who these youthful sons of the provincial governors were to understand Ahab's shock at the suggestion of using them as military leaders. It is nearly unanimous among the ancient Hebrew sages and later rabbis that these provincial governors were government officials over taxation districts that had been set up within the northern kingdom. This was a system borrowed from the Gentile nations and first set up in, in Israel by King Solomon. Their sons were essentially involuntary guests of the king who were being held more or less hostage in Samaria to guarantee that King Ahab wouldn't be deserted by these well-to-do men when Aram's army showed up. But the spiritual point is, these youthful men were in no way qualified to act as soldiers, let alone lead units of the army. And as the prophet instructing, as to the prophet instructing Ahav that he would lead the battle, hopefully we're starting to get the picture. The king Ahav was no David. Most kings, decent kings, even Gentile kings, would never think to ask the question, well, who's going to lead? It was expected that a king would lead his men into critical battles, but Ahav was a type of Middle Eastern monarch who was only in it for the comfort and the wealth and the prestige. He had no interest in, in, in getting his hands dirty or taking personal risks. He was no leader of men. So the idea is that it's humanly impossible that Israel could be rescued by a weakling of a king and a bunch of youth trying to lead soldiers into battle against impossible odds. Any victory for Israel could only come miraculously from Israel's God. Well, inside the walls of Samaria, Shomron, were 232 of these young men young sons, and 7,000 men capable of fighting. These are not the 7,000 who had bowed down to Baal, as spoken of when Elijah was at um, Horeb. This 7,000 is a round number. So it's symbolic of a force that's being divinely led. 
Well, around noontime, the 232 young men led a contingency of Hebrew soldiers out of the city gates and they marched towards where the Syrians were encamped. Well, the move startled the Syrian scouts who were watching the Israelites' movements in and around Samaria, and they immediately went to Ben-Hadad with this news. Well, this inebriated and overconfident king of Aram not only didn't sense any danger, his only thought was whether to take these men alive or to kill them outright. And his decision was to capture them all, no doubt to use as slaves, and to further heap humiliation upon Israel since the leaders were the sons of government officials. But the results weren't quite what Ben-Hadad had envisioned. Israel's army simply mowed down the Syrian troops that were really just a rabble of men who had come to steal and pillage, not die for Ben-Hadad. They panicked and they fled and Ben-Hadad did the same. And in verse 21 we find out that Ahav continued to behave in his usual character. He disobeyed the oracle from God. He did not lead his men into battle. Only after the battle was won and Aram was in flight did he then come out to participate and take credit. But immediately after the stunning victory, this anonymous prophet returned to Ahav, not with a reproof for his disobedience and his cowardice, but with a warning. This isn't over yet. The king of Aram is going to regroup. He's going to return after the turn of the year. The turn of the year, from a Hebrew perspective, is either in the fall after the seventh month, which is the change of the, of the civil calendar, or it might be in the spring according to the agricultural and religious calendar. Nisan is the first month of the year, and this is springtime. And springtime was the traditional time, when most armies marched out to lay siege and do battle because the weather allowed for chariot movement, and a lot easier passage of the army through mountain passes. However, the early fall was also conducive for battle because it was after the scorching hot summer months but before the winter rains and the snow began. So it's hard to know which is being referred to here. But the prophet's advice was to strengthen defenses, prepare because the battle is absolutely coming. Well, after arriving back home in Syria, the king of Aram got together with his royal court to ponder such an improbable loss to such a weak and undermanned enemy. And the intent to humiliate Israel had backfired. And no doubt, the Middle East was abuzz with this embarrassing defeat of Ben-Hadad at the hands of such a small force of Hebrews. Ben-Hadad had no choice but to try again or live with this shame for the rest of his life. The only answer for such an unlikely defeat must lie in the power of Israel's God. This is the reasoning of Ben-Hadad's advisors. But there's a clever solution to all this. You know, their God's a God of the mountains. That's what they say. And see, that's why 
in the mountains, the Israelites are strong. So, let's fight them in the plains the next time. Because then their mountain god can't help them. Now first, isn't it usual that we'll look at anything, anyone else, to find an explanation for our problems and failures rather than looking into the mirror? Second, don't we tend to rationalize about our misfortunes such that oh, if only this, if only that had been different, everything would have turned out as we hoped. See, it's ironic that the leaders of Aram were on to the truth when they suspected that Israel's God had to be the answer to this. But then they also allowed their pagan beliefs to lead them to conclude that Israel's God had boundaries and limitations, so maybe it was possible to outfox him. But let's not let something else fly by us. See, it was reasonable in ancient thinking that gods were territorial and had geographical limits to where they operated. But why would they conceive of Israel's God as being a God of the mountains? For one thing, at this time especially, Israel had altars everywhere. And it had always been Hebrew custom to put their altars on a bama, a high place. So when the Israelites of the northern kingdom performed their sacrifices in their religious rites, they invariably did it on hilltops, on mountain slopes, indicating this must be where their God lives. But there's also that matter of God's most ancient name, El Shaddai. And as we've discussed in here on a few occasions, Shaddai is now known to probably mean mountain. God's first known name to the Hebrews was God of the mountain. So it all made perfect sense and the logical conclusion for Ben-Hadad is to fight in the plains and avoid the mountains where that god was living. But there was another issue. Those 32 potentates whose men had turned and run when facing forces consisting of only a fraction of their own. These 32 potentates had no interest in doing anything except collecting spoils of war and no doubt had been sold the story that this battle was going to be minor or more likely no battle at all would happen because King Ahab's reputation was he'd simply cave in at the first sign of trouble. So Ben-Hadad's solution was to next time appoint seasoned soldiers to lead the other men and create an army not from the personal armies of those 32 petty kings, but instead of hand-picked fighters. He would also rearm with horses and chariots before they went back to fight Israel. Well, the time came. And after doing the typical census of his army, Ben-Hadad led his soldiers to Israel in the plain of Jezreel. He took his men to the city of Aphek. And when word came to Israel's military commanders that the armies of Aram were coming, they mobilized and they went out to meet them. 
But when Israel came, they were again so few in number as compared to Ben-Hadad's forces that verse 27 says their encampment looked like two little herds of goats. Verse 28 says that a man of God, an Ish Elohim, showed up and he spoke to the king of Israel. It is likely that this Ish Elohim is the same as the anonymous Navi prophet who had been bringing God's oracle to Ahav. So he serves the same function here of bringing Yehovah's message to the king. And the message is this. Yehovah says that because Aram believes that God is only capable, capable of defending Israel in the mountains, they're going to soon find out that he's God of Israel in the plains as well. He's going to defeat Ben-Hadad's forces and then King Ahav will understand that Yehovah is Israel's God. See, it's instructional to me that just as the Lord had tried to teach Elijah at Mount Horeb that he will continue to try to bring his chosen people to repentance in gentle ways rather than raining down wrath upon them, so here we see Yehovah is going to use this demonstration of destructive power on the army of Syria so that King Ahav would see it and realize God's mercy for him. Then hopefully he would repent. He'd be, retur- he'd be turned away from his, his wickedness and idolatry and he would know that the God of Israel is Yehovah. Well, after a seven-day stare-down, the battle began. And the results were essentially the same as the first time. Now, most Bibles say, as it does in the complete Jewish Bible, that Israel killed 100,000 Israel soldiers in a day. That's not a good translation. What it says is that they nakha, nakha, 100,000 soldiers. Nakha doesn't mean to kill. It means to smite. In other words, some, some were killed, some were wounded, some were captured, some fled. All right. They routed 100,000 men in battle. Therefore, of that 100,000 man army, 20,000 of them escaped and fled to the walled city of Afek. And we're not told if the collapse of Afek's walls was a direct intervention by God or that it was in consequence of the battle. However, the wall fell and it either killed or injured many of these remaining 27,000 Syrian soldiers, thus bringing the battle to an end. Well, in the interior of the city, Ben-Hadad was trying to avoid capture. So he moved from house to house, but as the inevitable neared, Ben-Hadad's personal guard suggested that they plead for mercy on his behalf, and maybe the king will survive. Now, the idea was not, uh, rather, the idea was that they had heard that Israel's kings tended to show mercy that most other nations' kings did not. The word usually translated as mercy is in Hebrew, chesed, which is usually better rendered as deeds of loving kindness. But to put this theory to a test, They volunteered to don sackcloth to put ropes around their own necks and then go to the king of Israel and ask for mercy and see what happened. Well, sackcloth was symbolic of mourning. The ropes around their necks signaled that they had already accepted a status as slaves 
if the king would allow them to live. But they could have hardly hoped for the reception that they received from King Ahav. When they gave to Ahav the content of Ben-Hadad's message begging to be pardoned, the king responds by referring to Ben-Hadad as my brother and instructed the men to bring the king of Aram to him. The men assumed that this was the best of omens and so they brought Ben-Hadad to King Ahav's chariot and King Ahav reached out a friendly hand to help Ben-Hadad board the royal chariot. King Ahav proved himself to be a rash fool, utterly unworthy of being king over God's people. This man he was warming to was an arch enemy of Israel who sought nothing but to humiliate and to annihilate. But when Ahav captures him, his only thought is to make him a friend, even an equal. That's the meaning behind calling him brother and of having Ben-Hadad stand alongside of him on his royal chariot. I mean, my head reels as I think back to the many times that Israel's modern day prime ministers have shaken the hand of their sworn enemies in supposed friendship only to turn and in no time be stabbed in the back. Over and over and over it happens. Even with that murdering and unrepentant terrorist Yasser Arafat. I mean, it boggles the mind how anyone can be so blind. Yet, all nations seem to occasionally suffer under poor national leaders who think that capitulation, appeasement, and intentional weakness in the face of brutal and evil enemies will lead to peace and harmony. Ahav must be one of the best biblical examples of such childish but dangerous naivete and nothing about it mirrors godliness. A covenant of peace was sealed between Ben-Hadad and King Ahav and part of the bargain was that several cities that Ben-Hadad's father had captured up in the Galilee region of Israel would be returned and then Israel would be given markets for their goods up in Damascus. And upon that, King Ahav released Ben-Hadad. And we'll continue with this chapter next time.